Every layer you peel off this particular onion, the onion gets bigger. I mean, it's just really, really interesting. But when you take self-comparison with others out of the picture, what are you left with? You know, well, it's got to be who you are and who you want to be useful to. Absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, let's launch right in. We covered two things in our last uh, podcast, your success criteria. And the third one, I don't think we really touched on, we didn't really get into this. How does a leader inspire their who's to really get the why and the vision? Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, first of all, if you're really into this, if your brain is really into who, not how, in other words, you're looking for who, not how, you become very, very good at spotting people who are great who's. I mean, it's just one of those things that your eyes only see and your ears only hear what your brain is looking for. The interesting thing about this, and I was talking about collaboration or competition, and I said, these are binary. You're either one or you're zero on this. There's no in-between. You know, there's In the digital code, there's nothing between zero and one in, a, in the digital code. It's either a zero or it's a one. So if you're going to be in competition, you got to be Jeff Bezos. you got to be Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, these are perfect zeros. These are perfect zeros. You know, they've got a whole system that's geared to just crushing all competition, okay? Personally, I don't have the wherewithal to operate in that. I would just surrender right off. <laughs> I, I would just say, I give up, I give up, I surrender. But in the collaboration world, that's all I'm looking for is collaboration. So the thing that I think, and I'll just create a, you know, some right off the top, and I think this is what Kathy was referring to with her comment, is they are on their own passionate about having their capabilities be used in the best possible way in support of someone else's bigger vision. Totally. Not that they don't have any vision of their own, but they see that actually being part of someone else's team is the best way for them to actually accomplish their own vision. What are your thoughts? Because me and Kathy were talking about in control versus in command. In charge, in charge. In charge, yeah. in charge versus in control. Yeah. So the thing about it, and we can use the Michael Crichton rule that I have for, is that I feel I'm in charge here because I've defined, you know, and I told Tucker, don't you dare change the title to How Not Who, because uh, <laughs> I said... <laughs> That's absolutely non-negotiable. I have to tell you, you can change anything you want, but you can't change and have it come out how, not who, you know. He said, oh, you've been learning from Chris Voss here. You, <laughs> And the other thing is that I think I'm in charge with the idea, but once I'm in charge and we're in agreed that I'm in charge of this idea, then control is given over to the people who can really transform something that's local into something that's global. Well, another key question here, and me and Kath were talking about, but I'd love your perspective on it, is, is once you've defined you know, the vision and the what via like an impact filter or you know, a handshake <laughs> to some degree or whatever, mm. or, Kathy was mentioning that relinquishing control, allowing the who to be the who can be very difficult for entrepreneurs. And it's one of the mindsets that you've got to have in order to really live who, not how. So how do you build that muscle, Dan? 
Well, I think through experimentation, you know, I mean, it's like anything that when you don't give up control, what's the result? And when you have a really good person that you can give over control and you get a multiple of the results simply because you gave over control to the person who actually knows how to do this. So my sense is that one of the aspects that make entrepreneurs entrepreneurs is an openness for risk-taking, okay? And we think of risk-taking basically in taking a risk in the marketplace or taking a risk in terms of, oh, I think I'll bet on this product or service or we'll bet on this particular new technological opportunity. But the actual risk is actually closer to home. It's actually what happens inside the entrepreneur themselves is they have a vision of something. And for the most part, and I would say in a lot of entrepreneurs where they're not willing to give up control, it's not a measurable vision. It's actually an idealistic vision. Almost anything that someone else does kind of violates the ideal of their vision. And they say, well, that's not really, no, no, you're off there. You're not really there. So the actual willingness on the part of a who to actually be part of your team and actually bring their capabilities into your team has to do with the fact that there's been a willingness on the part of the visionary to actually put the vision into measurable, achievable, accessible results and be 100% happy that however the who's actually undertake that task to get it done, that's 100%. So they're not quibbling with, I mean, you, you can't have it both ways. You say, I'm gonna give someone else the responsibility for doing the house, but I'm gonna tell them how they have to do their house. <laughs> so I think the permission, the willingness on one side depends upon the permission on the other. You know, well, that takes a lot of courage for people, for an entrepreneur to give that permission sometimes. Yeah, but here's the thing. What's the opposite of courage? You know, what's the opposite of courage? You know, I mean, it's cowardice. And you have to just compare the results that you get with the one and the other. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, if someone's being a coward, they're going to not get as powerful of results. <laughs> yeah, you would understand this because of the first two books that you've written your own books, and that is the person says, you know, oh, that's a really scary change. I would really have to change. That's really scary. And I said, okay, well, don't change. And let's go out three years down the road, and you're exactly the same. Is that scary? <laughs> okay, just don't change. <laughs> don't change. <laughs> I said, you're really into risk. I said, I can't undertake that risk. I got to be different from who I am 90 days from now. I mean, there's got to be some shifts in the next 90 days because the fear of being who I am 100% down the road is a really scary thing. I, I don't have the courage to stay the same. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, let's just play with this a little bit because, you know, the creator of the vision is also the one who's creating the successful completion of the vision. Yes. Okay. Yes. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put all my emphasis in the clarity of the vision for other people and the measurement of what the achieved vision actually looks like. I'm going to devote 100% of my time to that and then selecting the right who's for doing that. But once I've selected them, then I'm going to give them 100% control over the actual achievement. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is that, you know, I mean, 
I'm just enjoying it immensely the collaboration already with you know you and Tucker on this, and we got the final agreement back from Hay House this morning, and I just sent a little note to the person who's doing it, and I said, I just want to tell you how excited we are about our collaboration with Hay House and give my best to read you know, on this, because I haven't talked to Reed at all about this entire project. I mean, there's been zero talk between me and and Reed, and nor was there any need to. You know, there wasn't really any need. I'm sure he's busy, and, and I'm sure someday we'll talk to each other, but it wasn't really necessary, because the power of the other two collaborations I had was the proof that we were going to pull this off. 100%. Yeah, I mean, you, he knows who Dan Sullivan is, and he loves Dan's ideas, and Dan, in the book world, all the mystery is taken out when you add Benjamin Hardy and Tucker Max. Yeah. There's no ambiguity. It's like, oh, okay, we already know that the book world is taken care of because of the collaboration. It gives him confidence immediately. Yeah, yeah. and there was nothing I could do. You know, I mean, he'd have to do it on faith. Yeah, I mean, he would trust that you'd be able to get it done, but the collaboration can give immediate confidence. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I've just been exploring this idea. Maybe this is that in the digital world that because the code is one and zero, there's really, really no room for in-betweens. You know, you're either one or you're the other here. And so my sense is I'm not going to give up 90% of the control because that screws up the works. I'm going to give up 100% of the control. Okay, once we've agreed with a vision, once we've agreed how this can multiply in the future, there's nothing else to control. You know, the collaboration controls the vision now. (laughs) That's the transformational relationship component now. Yeah. The collaboration doesn't control the vision. The collaboration creates the vision, you know. So do you want 90% of the creation of the vision or you want 100%? Well, 90% isn't much better than 10%. (laughs) So here's a question, a kind of a distinguishment, because... When it comes to whoing out, let's just say someone on your team, you as the entrepreneur create the vision. Yeah. But when it comes to a collaboration, you mutually create the vision. Yeah. You know, it's all learning for me how you're going to see the project. I mean, because it's out of my world now. It's in another world now. So my feeling is it's all learning on my part. I mean, I can look at the table of contents and I say, well, there's a complete resonance here. The other thing is, I'm very conscious, it's just your first crack. And as you go through things, you'll be changing wording and you'll be changing. By the time it's a final draft, it's going to be different than this. But this is the direction. And my sense is the first 80% is the key progress. Okay, because it gets everything going and you got momentum and you've got motion forward. And then guess what? There's going to be learning on everybody's part here. So the words and, you know, the order and everything else may move around. But, you know, that's just the natural thing about it. It was funny because and this is the first time, you know, this is being announced because people are going to hear this. But I'm planning a halftime party for my 78th birthday. So this is. 22, and it's May 19th of 22. It'll actually be on the 20th. The 19th is on a Thursday, so this will be Friday. So I said, you know, since I'm the one initiating the party, it can't be a surprise party. I'm just telling you number one here. In case you didn't know, since I'm the one who 
is initiating the party, you can't surprise me <laughs> with the party. <laughs> you know, I said, I just want to be clear, you can tell other people about this, but what I'm going to do is have a concert first, and it's going to be a famous person who has been playing for 50 or 60 years, if we can get him. And it was the first jazz album that I ever bought in my life, and I was 14 years old. Then he's still playing. I was 14 years old, and he's still playing. So Steve Sims, you know, Steve. Oh, yeah. I'm using Steve Sims as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I just put it out to Steve, and he said, well, you know, he said, first of all, I can guarantee you he's not booked three years ahead of time. He's quite a bit older than I am. And he says, you know, let's just try it out. Let's just try it out. So we did that, but it's going to be someone there from 5 o'clock to 6.30, and it's going to be a sit-down concert. And then the party starts, and we have another musical group for the party because it'll be a really great dance band. And that's the framework, you know, that's the framework. It'll be in Toronto, and if we get it in good, and we're going to need two rooms and everything else. And somebody says, well, you know, what's exactly going to happen at the party? I said, it's three years away. We just got the first 80%. <laughs> let's let the rest of it unravel. <laughs> yeah, let's live with this. Let's let the party create itself as we go along. Well, yeah, but that goes back to what you were saying last week about you even mentioned it as the first 50% last week when it comes to being surprised. You know well, I mean? that's in relationship to my partnership with clients in the program. I'm going to allow them 50% over how the concept proceeds. 50% is mine. Hey, I got this idea. What do you think? Well, then I got to be open to what they think, you know. Yeah. But your 50% rule and your 80% rule are kind of similar. Yeah, they are. You have a concept and you throw it out there and then you let the creation process unfold after you've given the initial basis. Yeah. And my success is that a week later, it's been improved by twice simply by, you know, the interaction that we had in three or four workshops. And now we're ahead of the game. You know, it's a work in progress. But there are finish points where you say, well, that's what we produced. You know, and it's kind of looking back at my little books. Well, when I started the little book series, it had nothing to do with the project that we're actually working on because I didn't even know about it, you know. And I didn't have this as an intention. I had this that for our existing clients that these books would do a lot of good and it would help them with their teams. That was 100% success. So it's not that the books had to do anything more than what they are doing, but then all of a sudden... There's this huge other capabilities, you know, once you create a capability, it's attracted to other capabilities. Yeah, strategic byproducts, right? Yeah, it's a strategic byproduct. Yeah, and that's the thing you got to be open to in the world, that there's no final end game. There's just the end game that's bigger than the one that you first thought you were going to do. What is your own personal criteria, Dan? Like when you've done a project... And there's, in your case, you know, with your growing capabilities, you have multiple attracting capabilities coming your way. How do you gut check or determine if something that is becoming a strategic byproduct, as an example, you know, if something's becoming a new opportunity, you know, and obviously every situation can be different, but how do you determine if something is worth your time? Because you get a lot of things coming your way. Yeah, well, number one is that I got better as a result of the projects. You know, there are things that I can look back at the end of the project and I said, gee, 
I really saw some new things there. I did things better. My way of communicating was better. I did a, a better job than I had done previously in expressing what the what and why of the project. And then the next one is the teamwork with the other people. That was great. And I did a better job of setting up the teamwork so that there wasn't any friction, there wasn't any pushback, there wasn't any unclarity in the situation. And then the performance of everybody on the team took a jump. They got better. And at the end, we could all say, it's really interesting because the next project through, we can shorten time here, we can do this faster, you know, we can take out a step that we thought was necessary. So there's a lot of measurable criteria, which just has to do with your capability to do this type of project on an individual basis and team basis that really represents solid measurable progress to me. And then if you just got finished, well, you don't know what it's going to do. And all my projects increasingly as I get older tend to be front stage impact projects. They're not backstage. I'm not rearranging backstage furniture, you know, as we're going here. Your stuff is increasingly front stage. Yeah, it's increasingly front stage. And it's kind of funny, you know, Jordan Peterson. Yeah. So I just did Jordan Peterson's big five personality test. I don't know if you've seen it. No, which one is it? No, just go on. It's called Understanding Yourself. Okay. And it's 995 and it's 100 questions. It was very, very interesting because one of the characteristics is introversion. And the way I graded myself is that I'm in the 95th percentile for extroversion. No, extroversion. I'm an extrovert. Mm, mm -hmm, mm. And, you know, I've done Myers-Briggs a long time ago, and I came out as sort of introversion. But where I am in the world right now, I'm a just totally extroverted person. Everything that I do now shows up in the front stage. Totally, totally. Makes sense. Yeah. The thing is that I'm totally comfortable with it, which means that it's not forced on my part. But the interesting thing is, uh, and I'll send you my finished report so you can take a look at who you're dealing with, (laughs) if you had any questions of who you're dealing with. And the part of it is, you know, I was thinking about your, you know, the little joke I made about your first two books. We were driving in and I said, gee, Ben, you've taken away all their willpower and now you've taken away their personality. What's left? And so I was sitting there, I said, well, what is left? You know, what is left? And I said, well, unique ability, you know. Mm-hmm. Unique ability is not your opinion. Unique ability is proved by performance. Other people have told you, you've got a unique ability here. And the other one is that I'm being a hero to exactly the people I want to be. So I've replaced willpower and personality with unique ability and being a hero. <laughs> and then collaboration with other people who have the same hero using their unique ability. Once you take away kind of making an impression or making a performance or getting people to think that you're a certain kind of person, once you get rid of that, the only thing that's left is who you actually are and who you want to be in terms of your value to other people. You know, I mean, once you got a pretty good clear on that, you don't have to wear a lot of makeup. Would you say that in a prior episode, because you said years back you took a personality test and you would have scored a lot higher on introversion. Would you say that that had a lot to do with the state of the company, the state of where you were at in your creative process? But now, given where the company is, that the backstage is taken care of, you're the front stage guy. So now with this role and with really your current situation and wanting to make an impact through your unique ability on, you know, it makes most sense given the situation of where your company is and given your skills, 
to be a hero to people as an extrovert <laughs> at this point. Yeah. <laughs> like, that, that's yeah. how you need to show up right now with how you've positioned yourself. Yeah. I don't know if I relate it to why I thought I was an introvert is that I would get tired out by the role. So I had to leave myself a lot of time when I wasn't in the role or there would be deficiencies that I found in myself that I'd want to go in private and work on to improve my deficiencies. And I said, you know, well, too late for that. <laughs> wow. I also wonder if you've just gotten to the point where courage is the muscle that you're used to exercising now. And my guess is, is that your current 50% rule, you may be used to have it as a 90% yeah. rule. You would spend a lot more time whittling it before you presented it, yeah. right? And I think the other thing, I'd be a little bit more cautious about people's feedback. And now I'll just say, gee, that's a really interesting way of looking. Uh, can we go deeper into this? You know, and I'll simply take the person's thoughts and I'll put them on the smart board. And I say, hey, I just saw something because what you said here. And I said, I haven't seen that before. So the whole point is that my responding 100% to their feedback is actually more important than the exercise that I actually created. How I'm dealing with their feedback is actually the lesson that I want to get across. It's not so much the thinking process that I was trying to yeah, get. Yeah, totally, totally. Well, so here's a question, because to me, that's an enormous evolution. Yeah. The evolution being, you know, and I don't know if that has anything to do with personality. I mean, it could be, but you used to be a lot more impacted by people's feedback, whereas you're not anymore. And what would you attribute that to? Would you attribute it to... You just don't care what people think anymore? Because obviously you do, but what would you say has allowed you that transformation? Is it just that you care more about the audience now and that you're just worried about being a hero and you're not worried about your own opinion? I mean, I'm guessing it's a lot of different things, but what would you say has allowed you to make that transformation? Well, there's feedback and then there's feedback that contains creativity. You know, In other words, I'm looking for the creativity in the feedback. One is that I don't punish anyone for feedback. Okay. In other words, I want the feedback, so I've got to reward feedback, period, and that you're getting feedback. And I think I've developed skills. I think I've developed real skills with how to make giving me feedback in the workshop an enjoyable experience for everybody. I'm not a sucker here. I mean, I've got a sense of humor and I can turn things around. And, you know, the obvious way to deal with feedback is to simply ask a question about the feedback and then the ball is back to them and they have to talk about it. But I think I've become very, very comfortable. It's like stand-up comedy or improv. I'm very, very comfortable that there's a certain set of rules about exploring new ideas and welcoming feedback and being okay with the feedback and feeling confident that it doesn't matter what comes up, you'll be able to handle it. So there's so much here, Dan. What you're describing from my perspective is how one can become world-class at what they do. Yeah. But one thing that's really interesting in what you're describing, my guess, just listening to what you're saying is, is that you would register, you know, and you may disagree initially, but just hear me out for a second. My guess is, is that you register or you embody what we would call a quick start much higher now than you used to, even though I know that we say that this is innate, but my, my hunch is from a true quick start perspective, you're willing to take the gut idea, what we're calling the 50 or 80% and throwing it out there. And you have the confidence and you're also to a place in your confidence and also 
you understand how your learning process works and also how learning works. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that has to do with the opposite side of the coin, which is the feedback you get from other people. And so you're willing to engage in that learning process much faster because you want the result faster. You're less emotionally attached to what people say. You're more open. You've developed the skills to be open to feedback. You don't take it personally. So you're learning a lot faster. So before you may have, you know, been less of a quick start in the sense that you wouldn't throw yourself out there as yeah. courageously. And then you maybe took the feedback a little harder. And so you avoided feedback and learning. Yeah. Whereas now you're just like, I just want to learn. Yeah. You know, I was watching the two nighttime, you know, the famous two nighttime late show comedians, I think. So I can't even remember the one who, uh, this is sort of a negative story. But Jay Leno, you know, when he was doing The Tonight Show, I think it was The Tonight Show, Jay Leno, three times a week while he was doing this, he would go out and just visit a stand-up club, and he would talk to the owner of the club and say, would you mind if I did like a 15, I'm trying out a new idea, and I'd just like to try it out on one of your audiences, you know? So he'd walk out there, and, you know, of course, he's coming in with a lot of protection just because of his... But he's actually would just engage. He says, I'm thinking about something new, and I'm just going to try it out on you. And he would do this three times a week, regardless of how busy his schedule was, because he said, if you're not in right at the razor's edge of actually testing, and he says, you got to test on strangers. You can't test on your studio audience. You can't test on friends. You can't test on current audience. You got to test on newbies, right? You got to test on newbies. And it's got to be a surprise to them. And they're a surprise to you. He says, you got to recreate the conditions of when you first decided to be a comedian and went on stage for the first time. He says, the closest that you come to actually recreating the actual scare and newness and anything can happen. Whereas Dave Letterman, we went to his show in New York, and he only came out for his parts. So he didn't really acknowledge the audience at all. He come out wouldn't acknowledge, and of course he was operating strictly on what his writers had given him, you know. So it was all about him. It wasn't about the audience at all. It was just about his part on stage, and you know. It's edited a lot. I mean, the filming may be about two hours, two and a half hours, but it comes down to about, you know, much less than that. And I said, wow, he's just cut off from everything that's going to grow his future. I just had a feeling that he was completely cut off for everything. You know, apparently he was really great when he first started, before he was famous and everything else. He was really terrific. That was all gone. And I think he was scared of the audience. And Jay Leno the audience was his friend. And I think that's the difference, if that makes sense. It's crazy how much sense it makes because just think about it from a status versus growth perspective. Oh, yeah. The more status you develop, the more insulated you are from real feedback. You're in a defensive position because some smart ass is going to take a crack at everything you've built up, but you're a sitting target because that's in fact what they're going to do because... Because you have status. Well, not only that, but the attitude that you're projecting is that you're inviting somebody <laughs> wants to take you down, you know, whereas, you know, Jay Leno would just sit, you know, and then he would get people to tell their stories, you know, to actually tell the stories. And he says, this is so great. I'm, I'm learning so much here tonight. And he would reward the audience. I mean, they went for a local show and they get one of the most famous comedians in the world. And he's thanking them for what they gave him that night. I mean, what kind of treat is that? You know, one thing you said that kind of humbled me, to be honest with you, Dan, when you said rewarding feedback, I think my blog at this point, my articles collectively have been read over 100 million times. But 
obviously on every article, it's probably 80, 20, as far as positive feedback versus negative. You know, one of the things that Seth Godin says, which is kind of interesting with all of this is Seth talks about not reading the comments because, you know, Seth talks about how like on Amazon, for example, he has thousands of reviews on his books. And he said, he just stopped reading the comments because at a certain point it was too painful for him. He gets feedback in different ways. But one thing that was interesting was, is that I had written an article last week and I got really negative feedback on on the article from someone who was my wife's friend. It was kind of funny because I did not reward her for that feedback. You know, I was, I didn't actually know who she was, but there was a lot of people because it was on a Facebook comment and a lot of people started arguing against her kind of essentially protecting me because they were my fans or my audience. I've thought about it since, but I didn't reward her for giving me that feedback. I was certainly not like, you know what? I thank you for your feedback. There was a bunch of hounds that destroyed her, (laughs) you know, as far as Mm -hmm. my fans. But I just like the idea of being friends with the audience and what you've just re-reminded me of, because I'm getting back into blogging aggressively again, and I haven't done that for like two years, is I'm scared again to start blogging. Yeah, You know what I mean? Because I feel like I don't know if I have the same confidence and I'm even though I'm in a different place. And so I'm now starting to do it again and starting to open myself up, but just remembering what it's like to get used to throwing stuff out there and just playing with it. It's just so beautiful. It's in the present. It's real. It's new. It's unpredictable where it's going. And that's what got you started in the first place. I mean, those were all the energy boosters that you got in the first place when you first did it. So people cut themselves off. You know, when they reach status, they've completely cut themselves. They want a predictable world when it's status, right? Yeah, yeah. And the universe wants the parts back. (laughs) The universe only rewards constant growing participation. It doesn't reward any other position. You know, it wants movement. It wants creativity. You know, I'm just making a general statement about what I've noticed here that the moment that you decide that you want to stop the game, the game bypasses you. (laughs) You know, you can't stop the game. We're born into a game that was created long before us. It wasn't created for us, but we do get to participate if we have the mindset for participation, you know. And we can add to it, you know. And the thing is to have a proper sense of perspective about who you are, but take who you are and make it useful to other people. You know, that's really the proper attitude. And I'm better at this at 75 than I was at 50. I mean, I'm incredibly better at this. Do you think that has anything to do with aging, Dan? Because a lot of people talk about, you know, as a person gets older, they really care less and less about what people think about them. You know, whereas when a kid's a teenager, I think it more has to do with emotional development and also clarity of vision, clarity of self. I mean, your vision keeps getting bigger. Yeah. And so you're less attached to the hiccups along the way and you just want to learn and to grow and to become more useful. And so a lot of it has to do with your vision. Well, first of all, (laughs) you know, I mean, that's one of those things. I've met happy older people. (laughs) <laughs> but a lot of their vision's gone though, right? Well, they are happy and they have perspective on themselves and everything else, but we choose those as our examples of what happens to you when you get older. I've seen some really miserable old people too. So have I. I find that miserable old people practice a lot. They practice? Yeah, they practice being miserable for 75 oh. years. It makes you really... I mean, miserable old were miserable young. They've been practicing at it for a long time. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know if there's any truth, you know, percentage or... The big difference is, and we talked about it in our last podcast, is 
a lot of people are happy because they don't think anything is going to change now. In other words, they've given up caring about the future. Okay, and my sense is that that can bring a sense of calmness. But if anything, I care more about the future at 75. But it's a future that just includes a lot of other people. It's my future, but my future includes a lot of other people, you know, and great people, you know, more and more the quality of the people that are in the present who will be bigger in the future are better people than I've ever known in my life. So, you know, I've got some historic role models who probably keep me pretty, pretty level-headed. William Shakespeare, who I consider the greatest psychological thinker that ever lived, who wrote something that could communicate to other people. I, I know I said this, but Freud said about Shakespeare, you know, he says, every time I think I've discovered some new insight into human psychology, I walk down this road and I see someone coming the other way. And it's Shakespeare. He's already been there. He's already defined the layout. Probably he was the Michelangelo of a particular view on humanity. You know, I don't think he had any trouble coming up with plots or coming up with characters. I mean, it's what he did between breakfast and dinner. You know, that's kind of, <laughs> that's kind of what he did. But he did it in a team because the plays were not written. <laughs> the plays were written as they were being performed, you know, and everybody had a hand in it. I think there's this notion of lonely people who go off and have mighty thoughts. But when you go deep on this, you begin to realize that they had a lot of partners in their thinking, a lot of feedback in their thinking. So my sense is that the game is really big today. There's close to 8 billion of us. Everybody's got a notion of purpose and everybody takes action. And the difference is that we can know about these things from half a world away. There's a way of arranging technologies today where just with a one-hour conversation, you can reach thousands and thousands of people or a blog that can reach a million people. You know, and that's the difference. And so my sense is that it's actually easier today because of the multipliers. And a lot of the multipliers are technologies now, right? Yeah. And people who know how to utilize the technology, plug you into the technology. So I think it is what it is. I don't know if any time is easier or more difficult because you don't have that experience. You know, somebody said, well, put yourself in someone else's shoes. And I said, well, if I was in someone else's shoes, that means we made a switch that they're me and I'm them. And I'm not sure I'm going to get a good deal out of this. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, and there may not be any refund on this deal. And I said, well, you can't. You actually can't. It's interesting because I doubt anyone would really ever want to choose that. No. And I said, if I was in someone else's shoes, I'd be someone else. So I'd be dealing, you know, it would be a totally different world. It would be a totally different, unique ability. It would be a totally different set of experiences. I said, but what we can do is to be really, really alert to how other people talk about their experience and see if you can create structures that unify their experience with you. And that's what we're doing in our project here on the podcast. And this is what we're doing in the joint book project. Yeah, I'm not necessarily putting myself in somebody else's shoes, but it's more or less in really looking at myself, this is what it looks like to me. And I wonder if it kind of has a similar ring for you. 
if you're doing this. You know, and I think there's resonances that we get a resonance. I felt that first time I met you. I said, you know, if you look at the years, I mean, I was 45 when you were born, <laughs> but I feel the age makes absolutely no difference whatsoever. It's just this is your unique ability, this is my unique ability, and guess what? If we put the two of them together, we get something a lot bigger. Well, as you know, what's so interesting about that as a thought is, is that friendship has nothing to do with a mesh of personality types. It's more about shared vision and unique ability collaboration. Yeah. You know, and that's probably what really attracted you to Babs is that you guys together had a huge vision together. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's very interesting because I have a vision for the conceptual side of strategic coach, but she has a vision for the organizational <laughs> side of strategic coach. You know, it's really, really interesting because my mind just doesn't think there, you know, how are we going to expand? Which city are we going to go to next? I mean, left to my own, I'll just never think about those things. But where is the program going? What's the next quarter look like? What's the next book look like? What's the next concept? I mean, my mind is there all the time. Well, that kind of tells me something that I shouldn't try to, you know, learn that other side, just find someone who does that all the time, like I do mine all the time. Well, there's one thought I want to, you know, at least end on or go back to. It's the thing that blew my mind last time we talked, and it's coming back out in how you operate and learn, Dan. You mentioned last time the openness and willingness to be surprised. Mm -hmm. And today, you talked a lot about the whole 50% rule and being open to feedback and wanting that feedback, wanting to essentially be surprised in that curiosity. And so a thought that I have as it relates to kind of your four C's model, but really just how you learn in general is taking courageous steps out there, yeah. throwing yourself out there with the 80% or the 50%. And rather than over attaching to what comes back, having an openness to whatever the audience throws back and wanting to be surprised. Yeah. And so there's a lot of connection there between courage and seeking surprise as you learn. Yeah. And I would say there is an area of courage, but there's also an element of confidence about this, that you've done this. You've done this so many times. So many times that no matter what happens, it always turns out good. Well, the confidence, yeah, confidence is because you've yeah. built it up over time. Maybe in the past, it took a lot more courage, whereas at this point, now it's replaced by confidence. Yeah, I've been interested all my life in top-notch athletes, and I'm convinced that we watch the game and it goes at a certain speed, but I'm convinced that top-notch athletes and probably enter- Slow motion, yeah, you think? Time is just really, really slowed down. I mean, it's really slowed down. And it's slowed down because they can know only two or three things can happen, you know? So I'm playing tennis for the first time and it's against, you know, a top-notch player. For that person, only two or three things can possibly happen in the entire match. For you, it's a million things. It's a million things, and and I haven't experienced them before, you know. And so my feeling is that this is why it's important to organize your life around unique ability, because you want to have maximum benefit of repetition. Hundred percent. So you can see it from a million different angles. Yeah, yeah. The, you know, the whole thing that an amateur is someone who practices and practices until they get it right, and a professional is someone who practices and practices till they can't get it wrong. Yep. So Jay Leno, when he exposes himself three times a week, exposes himself to a set of strange circumstances, totally new club, all strangers, 
He's practiced so much that he can't get that half hour run. It's impossible to get it run. Can he be surprised and, yeah, creatively surprised? Oh, geez, I've, what a story. I mean, I, man, I mean, I just never saw that before. That's surprise. But he doesn't get the surprise. He said, geez, I'm not as good as I thought I was. At a certain point, you don't get that surprise anymore because being as good as he thought he was is no longer an issue. Because he's already great. It's hardwired. It's not up for grabs. And I got a feeling that, you know, with the competitor, I've never thought that Jay Leno thought Dave Letterman was his competitor, but I thought that Dave Letterman always thought that Jay Leno was his competitor. And the reason is that's why Dave Letterman couldn't pay attention to the audience because all his minds was, geez, I wonder what so-and-so is going to do tonight, you know, and everything like that. He was so focused on his competition, he wasn't focused on who he was trying to be a hero to. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I know people who've met him, you know, they've gone to, he's got like 500 cars or something, you know, he's got these warehouses of cars and he's in there tinkering with them. He's like, come around. He's like, which one would you like to go in and drive in? You know, this is a stranger off the street. Guy comes in and he says, I bet, you know, come on, tell me if you ever had a dream about a car. He says, I probably got it here. He says, let me, he's got a track and he's got everything. And he says, so let's go for a swing. And then he's talking all the time that he's driving, you know. And I think probably he's a total extrovert where Letterman's actually an introvert, you know. But the whole point is, because Letterman will be an eternal introvert because he never fell in love with his audience. The audience is always a threat. You know, the audience is always a threat. He's always against the audience. Yeah, you're against the audience. And I think that's not good. (laughs) 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 What it shows is a lack of trust and also his own emotional baggage getting in the way of the creative process and about his own emotional baggage of presenting value to his audience. Yeah, he never got comfortable with the game he was playing. You know, it's kind of (laughs) like you're, you're not understanding the full benefit. I had a great story in horse racing. There's two types of horses. There's thoroughbreds and standardbreds. And thoroughbreds are what you see at Kentucky Derby. And standard breads, they have a cart behind them. They have a sulky behind them. And they have two types. They have pacers and trotters, and they have totally different kinds of strides. But the all-time champ in Canada, this is a Canadian horse. I think one, you know, it's in the hundreds and hundreds of races. And I think it was a she. It was actually a mare. But was so conscious of the audience. And this horse actually fell in love with the audience because the moment the horse would come on the track, there would be standing ovations and everything. And the horse got into this positive feedback loop with the audience that she on her own decided to learn how to bow. And she would finish the race, and she invariably won, and she'd come back, and she would come right in front of the grandstand, and she would bow her foot. And the guy who was a trainer in the swan track, he said that this was something that the horse developed itself. That's taken to the, you know, the highest nth, you know, that an animal. But I've only seen one horse race in my life, and it was Secretariat's last race. Secretariat did actually before going to breeding, you know, because that's where the big money is in the big prize winners is that they become breed horses because you can syndicate this. You can raise millions, tens of millions of dollars and it's based on future prize winners. And Secretariat did all its winning on the track. None of his offspring ever amounted to anything, you know. And the reason is because he was a weird horse genetically 
when he died, they autopsied him and they found his heart was one and a half times the size of a normal horse. He was at least four inches bigger than any other horse. I mean, he was just an extraordinarily big horse. So we went down to the paddock, you know, where they're being saddled and everything to go out for the race. And you went along, and first of all, all the other horses were kind of looking at the ground and everything. And Secretariat was going from right to left and looking at every person would look you in the eyes and then go to the next person, look at the next person. And they had members of the jockey club come by, and there was this one woman who had this big floral hat. And as she walked by, Secretariat just leaned out and grabbed the hat and dropped it on and said, I'm the star here. <laughs> I'm the star here. This is who everybody came to see. They did not come to see you. He grabbed the hat. Yeah. No. No. <laughs> I'm the star here, and guess what? In 15 minutes, I'll be the star out there. So let's get clear here what the rules are. You know, and that was my one experience. And then, you know, he won by like eight or nine lengths. It was the last race. And it was like a... In sports, it was like a man among boys, him racing against these other horses, you know. And you could tell he was just enjoying the adulation and the fame. And Sports Illustrated listed the top 100 athletes of the century, and it's the only time an animal has. I think he was like number 53, you know. He was just something from another planet, you know. I mean, he was just as... <laughs> Yeah, of course. I think there's this feedback loop that happens where, yes, your confidence is growing so much because of the feedback loop that you can take risks, but the risks take courage because you can miss, you know, and you got to be willing to reward the experience where you miss as much as the experience where it actually turned out the way it did. Both are valuable. And that's your whole experience transformer, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Things that work, things that didn't work, things that need to be improved. You know, that's a process. Yeah. I like the idea of rewarding the experience. Awarding the experience. You have to award the experience. And I have to tell you, the workshops I've done where I've been most floored by the feedback are everybody's favorite workshop. That's the one you've been most floored by? No, no. It's just that any workshop where somebody says something, oh, I said, man, that, whoa, whoa. Boy, oh, yeah, that's great. Let's draw this out. What's everybody else think about this? I think this is an amazing insight and everything. And I'll sit there and I'll I'll get the concept on the screen. And I said, boy, oh, boy, this really expands things. That's a really great concept. And my feeling is that you survey clients who've been in coach for a long time. And they say, you know, where Dan gets totally surprised by something is my favorite workshop. Me too. You know, I've sat only on five, but the last one I was at, you were just having all these epiphanies. And I was just like, this is gold. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, because you're you're with them, you know, I mean, you're totally with them. Well, and it's a rare learning experience. I mean, think about it from a public education standpoint. My child, who's now in second grade, is literally doing the exact same assignments. And we got to go. Yeah. But same assignments as her brother did last year. I'm like, they're doing the exact same assignments. And my wife, what do you expect? I'm like, and you're never in a class where the teacher is learning in public education. And so it's so fun to be in a transformational atmosphere where the teacher is being blown away by what they're learning. You know, yeah. that's part of the fun. Yeah. The other thing is, Babs has this thing after there's been really a knockout presentation, knockout result, or 
knockout workshop and everything else. And she'll call me into her office and she said, lean over and she just feels my head and she says, okay, same size, don't worry. <laughs> you're fine. And that's important because you're either serious about what you're doing. Are you doing it for some other reason than you're just getting better, you know? And I try to keep the only reason I'm doing it is so that I can get better. It's perfect. It's the only reason we should do anything. Yeah. It's beautiful, Dan. Thank you for another amazing one. Okay. Thank you. See you, bud. Take care. Talk soon. Thank you.